If you're new, we are in the middle of our series entitled Enemies of the Heart. And when the Bible talks about this idea of heart, it's referring to what nowadays we would call the head in the heart. It's within the heart that you desire, you deliberate, and you decide. The heart houses our intellect, our emotions, our motivations. Just as we seek to take care of our physical hearts and protect them from enemies or diseases or ailments such as hypertension, stroke, or heart attack, we are told to protect our spiritual hearts, to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, of greatest importance, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. This idea of guarding is a military term. It's protect with vigilance against enemy invasion and attacks. For 24 hours a day, we're told to never leave our heart unmanned, unaware, or unattended. Through the daily rhythms of life, whether at home or at work, guarded. When life is quiet at night and no one else is around, protected. When we face trials and difficulties, defended. When we experience chaotic aspects of life, guarded. And so we're told with extreme vigilance to be aware of what takes to aim to destroy our hearts and protect our hearts against these common enemies that you and I face. Week one, we talked about this common enemy of guilt. And we said, guilt literally strangles the life right out of our hearts. It destroys confidence. It builds walls of isolation and mistrust in relationships. And God's remedy to overcome this enemy of guilt is through confession. Confession literally just means to agree with God. To call what God calls sin, sin. And if we confess our sins, as 1 John 1.9 says, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we're able to live in freedom uh, to move beyond guilt through this act of confession. Last week, Pastor Aiden led us in a conversation about anger. And we said human anger demands payment, right? That we all struggle with anger. We express it differently. Some of us are like skunks, and if we're angry, you know it, right? Our face turns red, and we get really heated. Others of us keep it inside for a while, allow it to boil up over time, and snap at people like a snapping turtle. Ephesians says, get rid of all bitterness, anger, malice, slander, the whole spectrum. And God's solution to anger is rather counterintuitive. It's through this idea of forgiveness, that godly forgiveness absorbs the debt. That through these ideas, we've taken a look at common enemies and the solution or the remedy to them. Today's enemy that we're going to be looking at is the enemy of greed. When I was young, my parents gave me a gift. And they gave me a gift that they intended to teach a life lesson to develop a discipline within my life. And this gift was a piggy bank. And so from a young age, my parents taught me the value of saving. 
They encourage me that when I receive birthday or Christmas money to hold some of it for a later time, that there may be items that I'd really like to purchase. When this piggy bank started to become filled, they took me to open a bank account. I was always a numbers guy. I'd memorized my bank account number, and I could tell you probably within a few cents how much money I had in my bank account long before the smartphone. This idea of savings really resonated with me as a kid, and I began to apply it in other areas of my life. Take hobbies, for example. I enjoyed collecting baseball and football cards. And so most of my friends, when they'd receive the cards, they would open them, they may bring them to school, they may show them off, not Adam Spees. I would keep the plastic wrapped on the sets of cards convinced that in 20, 30 years, they would be worth more than they are now. The unfortunate thing, football cards in the 90s are worth like nothing now. So they just have plastic stored in my basement, right? But I took this idea of saving for later to great, to great lengths. I enjoyed observing and watching my mother's purchasing habits We'd go to the grocery store. She wouldn't always purchase things on the eye level. She'd kind of grab lower off name brand items when it came to shopping for shoes. And in the Spees household, you couldn't have a proper celebration without sharing how good of a deal that you got on a certain item, right? I loved saving money. When it came to subjects in school, math was always my favorite. I struggled significantly and English, and eventually foreign language, but math came easy. I would take extra math classes for the fun of it. And so when it came time to choose a major in college, I chose accounting. I liked working with numbers. When I learned about this idea of personal finance or financial planning, I quickly switched. I was intrigued by it. And so I learned as a freshman and sophomore the value of planning for retirement. And so I opened a Roth 401k. And I started getting money as a student assistant, and I started putting money into my retirement account, convinced that if I could put money in my early 20s, that it would accrue over the course of time and be worth a lot more as I turned to retirement age. I learned that it was important to diversify accounts. I learned that it was important to understand and to develop a good credit score. And so I learned that... um, There were many factors that went into a credit score, such as the length of credit history, making your payments on time, the amount of open credit. And so I opened a credit card as a sophomore, and I began kind of making those monthly payments, building my credit score, right? All with the idea of being able to translate this value of saving. Others began to notice around that time, and I was elected my fraternity's treasurer. They realized that I was decent at handling money. I remember getting a call from a graduate brother one day, and he said, Adam, you're doing a great job. You're organized, you're detailed, but it's probably not the wisest to write reimbursement checks out to yourself, right? So I learned some valuable principles, but I wanted to kind of take this idea of saving beyond, and I wanted to reproduce it, and I began looking as when I began dating and even into marriage, I wanted to have someone that shared that value. I remember uh, being out to dinner with a group of people, and I was interested in my now wife, Johanna. And she was sharing about a first date gone wrong. And she said, would you believe it that that guy happened to use a coupon? And I was like, oh, no. Like, the entertainment coupon book was my dating guide handbook. (laughs) Like, 
I just planned activities based on different deals that I could save and do. And I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work. Eventually it did. We were able to overcome that. And then as we were planning our wedding, how many of you would maybe appreciate a son-in-law in the same position? But I got uh, my, a call from my father-in-law. I was ready to go play softball. And I remember him on the phone and he said, Adam, I appreciate that you want to save me as much money as possible for this wedding but we're not cutting corners on your wedding. Like you don't have to be as frugal as you're intending to be with this wedding, right? When it came to my first home, I was convinced that I was not paying PMI. I was gonna save 20%. I was gonna get a 15-year mortgage because that was the best way to do. Now, for all the fun or perspective that I've had about money, others would laugh, call me frugal or cheap. I'm okay with that, right? But generally speaking, everyone I've interacted with have always considered my mindset and perspective about money to be one of a virtue. Rarely, if ever, was I confronted or challenged what I actually considered to be a virtue may actually be a vice. You see, greed is an enemy that's seldom on display. It loves to hide behind something virtuous and worthy something shrewd, something smart. It's an enemy that is deceitful. It's an enemy that wears camouflage. I'd like you to write it this way. Greed, the disguised enemy of the heart. Jesus knew of our propensity or struggle with this idea of greed. That's why the Bible records a lot of conversation about money. Half of the parables that Jesus shared spoke to this idea of money or possessions. One out of every 10 verses that we see in the Gospels deals directly with the topic of money. There's around 500 verses in the Bible that speak on prayer, over 2,000 that speak on money. And Jesus himself in Luke 12 says this, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Be aware. Greed is sneaky, it's deceptive, and it's dangerous. Be aware of its tactics. Be able to identify and be able to understand the importance it has related to your heart. We're going to look at a letter in 1 Timothy where we see Paul write, to Timothy to encourage him to help identify greed in the community that he's in and help to overcome it. It's page 962 in the Bibles in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, don't love the version of the Bible that you have, please take that with you. That's our free gift. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is his disciple kind of mentee, and he's traveled with him around on various church planning trips. And so Timothy is left in Ephesus to take care of this young church. And so what has happened is as this church has begun to grow and mature, there's false teachers in the midst. And one of the predominant things they're teaching is that godliness is a means of financial gain. They would be modern-day televangelists, that if you give to God, you're going to be blessed material speaking. And so what Paul does is he instructs Timothy in a way that he can teach the people of Ephesus related to their possessions, related to this enemy of greed, and how to overcome it. 
First Timothy chapter 6, we'll start in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, will we be content with that? Look at it, write it this way. Greed focuses on what I don't have, not what I do. Greed can attack us whether we have financial wealth or we're in poverty. It's not dependent on the amount of income we make. Greed is sneaky, it's deceptive, and it warps our desires. And what we once considered luxuries become necessities. Take, for example, my first car, a Mazda 323. I bought it for $300. This is one like it. Mine was gray, okay? It was a four-speed manual car. It would shake at like 50 miles on the highway, right? And it didn't have a right-side mirror, as you see here. It wasn't required by law. That would have cost extra money, right? If you were to ask me in high school what I desired from a car, I would have responded, four doors and air conditioning. That was my dream when it came to a car. I didn't have that as part of my first vehicle. This Saturday, I'm going with a group of friends. Every year, we go to the Cleveland Auto Show. As I walk in, I know the temptation that faces me to be a little more disappointed with the car that I drove there than what's inside, right? That as I'm on the Jeep Wrangler test track, that I begin kind of thinking these things that I want, or maybe at some time I'd like to have, right? It's natural for all of us. These things that once we considered the bare necessities transform into luxuries that we think we need to have. Greed focuses on what I don't have, not what I do. There's an organization by the name of Carrier International. It's out of the UK, and they help impoverished nations all around the world. And so they came out with a website called the Global Rich List. And what you can do is you can take either your wealth or your income, put the figure in, and see how you compare to the rest of the world. If you made $32,000 this past year, now, mind you, on average, in 2017, the median income in the United States was about $58,000. If you make $32,000, you're considered in the top 1% of the entire world. Most of us own a car that we drove here in. We have access to education K through 12. We have public libraries that we can go rent books. We have national parks that we can visit. We have access to free health care. It's easy to take for granted the things that we do have and begin to focus on those things that we don't. Greed warps our desire in a way and allows us to focus on the things we don't rather than the things we do. Look with me in verse 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I enjoy watching a good car chase, 
in particular, uh, a police chase. Maybe you too, as you're scrolling through uh, your television or searching on YouTube, right, that it can be enticing and alluring. Well, I believe this idea is saying that greed is a costly, high-speed chase for contentment. There was a study done from the 1980s to the early 2000s. And they began to take a look at uh, various police chases. And they found that at the end, the end result with what they were able to charge the suspect was often a suspended license, maybe a few empty beer cans, or a minimal aspect of uh, paraphernalia, drug paraphernalia, right? Misdemeanor charges on some level. But they began kind of looking at the carnage and the wreckage that was left behind with these police chases. They found that a third of all the chases ended in a wreck of some kind, whether the police officer's car or the suspect or others involved. 30% of those that were injured in the chase were innocent bystanders. And so in response police departments began instituting a restrictive pursuit policy, right? For things such as felonies or other crimes, they would go as normal, but they began to assess the parameters involved, understanding the damage that was done by engaging in this chase. I believe many of us are tempted to live our lives in the same way. We can chase the suspect of money, with the hope of it bringing contentment. And all along the way, it's easy to forget the damage and carnage that's left behind. That this chase is exciting and it's luring and it's hopeful only at the end of it to be disappointed. And the people that are left behind are our friends and our family. Working long hours while our children are crying out for our attention. Right? looking to purchase that next home so that we can make people comfortable and satisfied only to miss the process of living in the moment. Have you considered your own restrictive pursuit policies when it comes to money? Are there things that you are unwilling to do, unwilling to chase after, knowing that harmful desires and passions and ruin await those who allow themselves to run after the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says that whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Greed is addictive. Money is alluring. It's enticing. There's a Roman proverb that says, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Satan's desire and goal would be for us to be chasing this allure of money to hope with the end to find contentment. Right? Because in doing so, it leaves us far away from the one that can truly provide that source of contentment. Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Paul, the author of Timothy, wrote in another book that he has learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, in every and any situation, that he can receive contentment. That's not dependent on financial wealth. Andy Stanley, in his book, Enemies of the Heart, it's what we're loosely basing the series, says, Peace is a fruit of the Spirit, not a byproduct of accumulated wealth. As you sit here this Sunday morning, are you content? Not asking if you're complacent or lazy or not striving to be better. Are you able to rest assured in what you have been given? Are you able to avoid engaging in the high-speed chase knowing that contentment won't be found in running after money? Look with me at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. I get to write it this way. Greed prioritizes short-term gains over long-term investments. I'm a big fan. I love the game of Monopoly. My friends and I, on a about yearly basis, will gather together to play Monopoly. We've actually advanced to play Triopoly. One of our friends purchased it. It's like three Monopoly boards stacked on each other. But the goal is the same, that you want to accrue as much money that can buy you property that you can place homes and then hotels with the goal and intent to bankrupt your competitors, right? So at the end of the game, the winner is the one left with the most things. There's an author by the name of John Ortberg, and he writes a book. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. That idea of when our earthly life is finished, everything that we have sought to accrue, our money and our possessions, they're left here. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out. I think this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew six nineteen and 20. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This idea of greed is temporal, it's short-term It leads us on a chase for contentment that won't satisfy. And so Paul didn't leave the readers in Ephesus empty with how to overcome it. Later in the letter, he begins to give them some instructions of how to build this defense system against greed. God knows that this enemy of greed is real, is prevalent, and is a narrative of our culture part of being an American, right? We see it, we hear it, we live in it. And so this defense system is important for us to begin to institute to fight this enemy of greed. I'd like you to write it this way. Giving is our protection against greed. You see in verse 17 and 18, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. I think the first part of giving that I want to point out is found in verse 17. 
When it describes God, it says God is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I'll get to write it down this way. Giving understands that all of mine is a gift of the divine. Truth is, you and I do not own the things that we have. Our money, our house, the vehicles, they're not ours, they're God's. It's this prevalent, pervasive theme through all of the Bible that God ultimately is the one who distributes them to us for a period of time, that he is the owner of everything that we have. A few years ago, my family was given a week-long trip to a condo in Florida. And so I packed up my two kids then, and they were three in one and brought my parents along to help out with the kids. And so I remember making our way down to Florida, and I remember taking the key and turning it through the keyhole and opening the door. And to my amazement right before me was brand new white carpet. I kind of looked behind my kids, fearful of what the week may entail. And as I made my way further into this condo, I look at the dining area. I was hopeful that maybe the dining room table was, uh, had tile or like wood underneath. No, that great white carpet <laughs> was right underneath the dining room table. And so all week, we wanted to take good care of what we were given. The last thing we wanted to do was any spill on our friend's carpet. And so when it came to mealtime, we put my son in the corner next to the refrigerator, on the tile, around the cabinets, and my wife and I would rotate as not to get anything on the carpet. We recognized that this condo was a gift for us, and we wanted to be good stewards and live in response. A few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a guy in the cafe. And I kind of put my arm around him and was just thanking him and his wife every week uh, pick up one of our elderly ladies who doesn't have transportation. And I was just thanking him, and he didn't kind of dismiss the act, but I was shocked in the manner in which he responded. And he looked at me and said, Adam, we consider our vehicle God's. It's our pleasure to do so. And I was just struck by the reality and the implications of understanding the things I own to be God's. That ultimately, he is the owner. That he's given them to me for a period of time to meet my needs and to bless others. Imagine if we thought of that way about our homes. Maybe about our refrigerators or our dining room tables, right? Our money. That God is the one who distributes them. That he's given them to, for us to use wisely for our benefit, and for others. Look with me in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. I'd like you to write it this way. Giving is driven by faith in battle's fear. Giving is a sign that I trust God and that I believe his promise and that he will be able to provide for me. Giving overcomes worry. 
Worry says that I can fret over my finances or be preoccupied with my bottom line. Giving is a sign of trust and dependency that God will ultimately meet our needs. Here's the deal. I think some of us are intentional and planned in our giving, but we've stopped growing in generosity and living by faith. There's a man by the name of John Wesley, and John Wesley was one of nine children. And he grew up in a relatively poor family. His father at one point was taken off to debtor's prison in the United Kingdom. So John was rather smart and he became a professor at Oxford University. In one of his first years, he uh, kind of moved on campus and he began decorating his room. And he enjoyed kind of the nightlife, brandy and partying. And he had an encounter with a young lady. And this encounter, he ran into it, it was rather cold, and he noticed that she didn't have much clothing, warm weather on. And so he reached in his pocket with the hope of being able to hand her some cash so that she could go buy herself a coat. And he recognized that he didn't have anything left. And so he began convicted about this idea of how he spent money. And so from a the young age, he chose to be more concerned about his standard of giving rather than his standard of living. And so as he received more income as he went on, his goal was to live a simple life and to minimize his standard of living, to keep it as static as he could with the hope of being able to give out of what he had received. And so it's recorded that By the end of his life, John Wesley, a single man, was able to live off something similar to what he had when he was young. And all the way to give some 1,400 pounds a year, and he lived off 30. It's amazing to think. He was more concerned with his standard of giving than just his standard of living. I have to ask myself that question. When it comes budgeting time or planning, right? Do I exercise faith related to giving and generosity? Am I growing in generosity? Or am I more concerned about my standard of living? Andy Stanley says in his book, A greedy person is the man or woman who saves carefully but gives sparingly. A generous person is the one who's more concerned about their standard of giving than just their standard of living. Look with me in verse 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that it may take hold of the life that is truly life. I'd like you to write it this way. Giving places deposits in the timeless treasury. Now in college, as I'm learning all this uh, wisdom and information about financial planning, I began to have some tension when I came to following Christ. And what I was prioritizing early on, I began to recognize that that wasn't the only thing that was significant that I could do with my money. That through this act of giving and good deeds, I could begin making deposits in the timeless treasury that I could store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. 
When I think of my kids as a parent, I recognize that I am the primary spiritual coach of my family, along with my wife, that we want to instill this value of saving, but without minimizing, I want to help our children prioritize the timeless treasure that they have to be able to give to. I want to cultivate in my kids this heart of generosity, helping to overcome and not feeding greed. I want to encourage them to give and to enjoy giving out of the excess that God has given them. And it won't always be convenient. I think of uh, this Valentine's Day. My daughter's sick. She's in kindergarten. And she came that Wednesday morning, and she had three gifts that were wrapped in pink wrapping paper. And I'm like, Maggie, what are you doing with those? She's like, well, I'm going to take them to my three friends on the bus as a Valentine's gift. I'm like, well, what's in there? She's like, clothing and different items that we have. I'm like, well, it's probably not going to be possible for you to carry all that on the bus. Why don't we kind of stagger when you give them the gifts and so that they can enjoy them, right? We got a text message from one of the parents that says, hey, my daughter's really enjoying the dress that she given. Was this an accident? Do you in, did you intend to give it to her? And we're like, well, we really didn't know what was in there other than the standpoint of we want to cultivate this aspect of generosity within our kids, right? That as they grow, I want to significantly help them to understand the importance and priority of saving, but not at the expense of giving. I want them to help value the opportunity that they have to be generous, to find joy in giving to help meet needs, to find joy in giving to the kingdom of God. There's a way that we can outlast ourselves, that it doesn't all have to be playing the game of Monopoly, and it's through making deposits in this timeless treasury. Now, as we sit here, I think many of us may begin to assess and wonder where our heart is. The thing that I love about money is it provides a real picture, a litmus test, a barometer of where our heart is. Because we see in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. When we take a look at our credit card statements or bank statements, we can have real evidence of what we prioritize. And it can begin to help us understand our heart. Is it one where I'm allowing greed at times to overtake or am I consistently battling against it in a way of prioritizing others? Am I seeking to be generous with what God has given me? Now I believe for all of us to work hard at being generous or just making plans isn't necessarily the way or the only way to do it. I believe that it only comes when we first recognize how generous God has been with us. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. That God himself chose to leave his heavenly mansion to be born in a stable, so that he could live a life of poverty for me. Because each of us stands spiritually bankrupt. We're in debt more than we could ever possibly repay. No matter how good we may try to be, no matter how moral or things we may do, we can never repay the payment that our sin has brought. But God himself chose first to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. That part of his character is for the joy set before him, he endured the cross so that he could be reconciled with humanity. And it's only once we begin to understand and grow in this gospel that this love of generosity will continue to well up inside. It's not something that we work really hard or be disciplined at. Those are helpful. But it's one of recognizing God's generosity and being able to respond. It's recognizing that Jesus gave to me And that once I receive, I have the opportunity to participate. Because if Jesus is everything I need, I am free to give everything I have. Once I place all of my hope, certainty, and faith, and trust in God's provision and his promises, then I'll be able to be free to be generous, to be concerned more about using my money for eternal significance and not just temporal satisfaction. That I could begin to live my life in a way that would allow God's name to be glorified. At Grace Church, we like to say, we live to give. It's one of our values. May we be people of generous spirit who choose out of joy to be able to respond first after what God has given to us. Father, we thank you and we recognize, Lord, that all of us are in different places. And many of us have a desire to want to be generous. I pray that you would help us in those times recognize how much you've truly given to us, the opportunity that we have to encourage and meet the needs of others, the opportunity that we have to uh, display a picture of the gospel. And Lord, it's all driven by the fact that you yourself gave, that when we were in our state of poverty, that you gave us spiritual health, that financial wealth is important, but it's not everything to live for. Lord, we want to give out of what you've given to us. Lord, once we understand how much we've received, only then can we truly begin to give in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.